Hello. 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 <laughs> Hello. 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 <laughs> I'm trying to say it if I see if I can say it the exact same way every single time. Hello. This is Jen. Hello. Hello. <laughs> do you want to do your disclaimer thing? Sure, I guess. I guess so. Hello and welcome. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> Hello and welcome <laughs> to the Wheel of Crime podcast. The podcast where two ladies play games, mumble profanities, and laugh way too often. Also, this podcast does cover topics of sensitive nature and as such, listener discretion is advised. <sighs> I love our theme music. The really, really poorly done bad beatboxing sound effects. Yeah, I love it. I listen to it every week when I edit these. And I'm like, oh yeah, this is my jam. You're like my favorite part. Circus Halim or something. Circus, uh... Oh gosh, I don't even remember. It's been so long. It's like Circus Polka or something. I love it though. Polka music? <laughs> Near the end of the song, like the part that we don't ever use, it gets like funky. Oh, I know. It gets super funky, and I'm like, maybe I'll use I mean, I'll just switch it up one day and just start using just this. <laughs> we could have it as like a closing part of the podcast. Like we start the episode with the first half and then we end it with the second half. Yeah, exactly. Oh, man, that'd be fun. But um, I guess my name is Emily. I suppose my, that makes my name Jen. And I don't know. I guess that means together we're the Wheel of Crime podcast. I don't know. You tell me. <laughs> I'm not quite sure how this whole thing works. New to technology. I'm a time traveler. <gasps> what? <gasps> oh my gosh. I knew it. You're from 1921. Absolutely. <laughs> I for sure thought you were going to say like the 80s or something or like slightly believable. <laughs> I'm actually 409 years old, guys. Oh, that I believe. I look it. I have no comment. Look at the bags <laughs> under my eyes. <laughs> this screams 409. I thought you were going to say I feel it, but then you said I look it. And that completely changed my train of thought. <laughs> because i relate to that on a spiritual level and yeah like, look at these bags i'm like i know i got them too <laughs> look at me I'm tired always see but i've had them since i was a child i remember your mom used to comment on my like eye bags and i was always That's like i'm just really tired all the time your eye bags were mixed in with purple eyeshadow it's true I had the it didn't tw- help. I had like a little eyeshadow palette and it was like a Twilight theme one. So it was like black with like dark purple and like blood red. And like it Hang was on, the weirdest. Twilight is in like vampire Twilight? Yeah, like t- the Twilight movie. Oh my God. My parents got it for me for Christmas. It, they, it's their fault. <laughs> if you're listening, mom or dad, it's your fault. <laughs> I look 400. I like how you just dated yourself. You're like, when my childhood with my Twilight palette <laughs> during my scene girl phase. <laughs> it's true. I'm not ashamed. Well, actually, I am ashamed. That's why I privated all of those photos. Let me tell you something. And this horrified me when I read it. You're not the only person who remembers that phase of your life. There are people who we've gone to school with and that you've met in your life who remember that and probably have photos of that. Like how? That's just it. You don't know. Oh, I thought you would like talk to someone specifically like, Jen, remember when she was a scene girl who left to Wiley? I remember. Oh, no, I didn't talk to anybody. It's just like a spooky thought. Spooky food for thought. See, but I was always the one taking the photos. I I feel pretty comfortable with that. Mm, Yeah, okay. I'll I'll take that one. Yeah. So I'm good. You're screwed. No, I know that already. 
But I didn't have a scene girl phase. I've just been a loser my whole life. So You had an old lady phase, though. That isn't a phase. That's my life, and I'm still in it. <laughs> you were, like, a little businesswoman, though. <laughs> I know. I remember having, like, a shoulder-length haircut and, like, wearing a black blouse to like picture day with the gaudiest necklace i've seen in my whole life (laughs) you were the karen of our middle school i was the karen of the middle school (laughs) yikes (laughs) now that's a food for thought that's a spooky thought and it's not even halloween anymore i know (laughs) i was gonna say would you like to tell our listeners what our uh theme theme topic week topic theme thing is well, didn't you guys come from last week's episode, huh? Huh, punks? You not listening? No, nah, they're just they're just one offing it. They're like, "Ooh, that sounds neat." Fair. Same. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I relate. <laughs> Same. No, we're talking about obscure war crimes. Dun, dun, dun. Because Remembrance Day, yo, is coming up. I or it has was, happened. It's the eighth. I thought. No. No, it's the eleventh. We were supposed to upload on the 8th, but we're late. This episode is late. <laughs> Remember, she's the 11th. I know. What is I'm wrong horrible. with you? I'm like, even excited. I'm like, yeah, I get day off of work. Uh, I definitely think I still work that day. But I will be remembering the veterans as I work. Yes, for sure. 100%. Yes. I like how the the V for Vendetta date came and went and i totally missed it remember remember the 5th of november the gunpowder treason and plot i see for no reason this gunpowder treason should ever be forgot how do you even know that i don't know my brother like always used to say it when i was younger so like it got like ingrained because like he would say it and he'd be like you don't know what that's from and i was always like well fuck you phil (laughs) and then once i finally figured out what it was from i'm like Remember, remember the 5th of November, Phil. Phil. (laughs) Punk. Oh, we know he doesn't listen, so this is just doubly funny. (laughs) Ha ha, fuck you. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, gosh. But I guess then we should probably spin our wheel of questions so that we can talk to you today about some of the questions surrounding our obscure war crimes topic. I bet the questions are going to be obscure, too. I mean, they might be. (laughs) Do you know anyone who's been in a war? I think so. Well, I didn't really meet him, but, like, I know people in my family have been. I'm trying to think if I actually, like, met one of my living relatives who was in the war. Okay. Because, like, my great-grandfather was, I'm pretty sure, but he died, I think, right before I was born. Oh, okay. But, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, because I have something similar where there are relatives of mine who were in war, but those ones, I believe, didn't make it back. Ooh. But I do have Sad. a... Sad. Yeah. Um, but I do have some living relatives of mine who went overseas to Afghanistan, who work mm. with the RCMP, and those ones I've met. Yeah. No, I think all of mine family who were veterans passed away before i was born yeah i think they all made it back i don't know i don't know it's one of those things where i think unless it's somebody your family was decently close to it's really hard to know exactly what's going on with that considering how much time has passed yeah i do know that there are still war veterans though that are alive and well from world war ii yeah is that right yeah well, like, my brother has this, like, silver ring, and it was made from a bullet from my great-grandfather who had passed away oh. from when he was in World War II. He carved it. Oh, that's interesting. hmm That's super neat, actually. It is really cool. And his name was Phil also, so, like, the initials he carved into it, too, are PW. Oh, that's cool. So it, make, it would make sense, then, why your brother would have something like that. Mm-hmm. It's like how we, we were talking about family heirlooms the other day and how my family passes down a very old nasty camel coat to each other that thankfully will never make its way to me it's already made its way to your brother oh and he can keep it (laughs) (laughs) what is the best subjectively war movie or book so this can be either one that you felt like was a good experience in watching or one that you felt would accurately portray war to the best of your knowledge 
I don't know. I didn't personally love this movie, but I think Dunkirk, the one that recently came out by Christopher Nolan. Oh, okay. I heard that it did, like, a lot of war veterans went to that film and said, like, it was pretty accurate. And experiencing it, it was, like, really, like, brutal. Okay. And, yeah. like, loud and... Yeah, and all, all that uh, stuff that goes along with it. I don't think I watched that one, but I do remember being in school and watching Schindler's List. And I remember that one. It's hard to explain. It's not really something that you enjoy, but I remember watching it and it stuck with me because it's almost like the air got taken out of my lungs when mm-hmm. I was watching it. You know yeah. what I mean? But in that sense, I thought it was a good movie. I also thought Saving Private Ryan was pretty good. I don't know oh, okay. how accurate it is or anything, Yeah, but... Yeah, no, I like that one, too. I can't think of any books off the top of my head right now, just because I don't really read that genre, but... Yeah, I don't really read war novels. But the ones I have, it's usually more fictional. It's not really based off true Real events. Real yeah. So, it, I don't think that would be accurate. That was a weak spin. <laughs> <laughs> so, when you think of war, what is the first war that you think of that pops into your head probably world war ii same i think it's because we learned the most about it in school yeah i know for some people they also think if they have a living relative they will think about the vietnam war Mm -hmm. first and foremost or the civil war yeah well i think maybe not as canadians as much the civil war for sure more americans i think but but yeah i definitely think a lot about world war ii i also find it like really interesting like everything that went on I find World War II, like, kind of, like, interesting in that way. Not that it's a good thing and well, no, stuff did, that well, happened, but... I think... No, I think you're onto something with that. And there's nothing to feel bad about saying it's interesting because... It's, like, the same fascination that I have with, like, true crime. It's, and like... Murder. And murder. <laughs> but, no, I see where you're coming from, though, because I have the same thing where there was so much different technological advances that happened during that time Mm -hmm. and a lot of different things and different resources that people had to come up with last minute to make into something else and like a whole lot of different things that changed and happened and telecommunications and all of that stuff right Mm -hmm. and like the politics behind it all was really Mm -hmm. interesting hitler as a leader how the fuck did that happen and the preceding wars like the cold war like coming right after that and the berlin wall like there's just a lot of stuff all kind of packed in there. Mm-hmm. Yep, like a sandwich. Sandwich. A war sandwich. A little bit like a war sandwich. <laughs> uh, on that note, because... Oh, yeah, we're done. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> because we did pick particularly obscure war crimes, I'm going to read you out the definition of obscure. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Oh, don't worry. It's super interesting. Well, if you want to hear the definition of war, just go back to last year. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And that's not a joke. Um, It's not, unfortunately. (laughs) So if something is obscure, it's vague and hard to see. Be careful if you're driving in heavy rain. The painted lines can be obscure. (laughs) Okay. So the word obscure comes from the Latin obscurus, which means dark, dim, unclear, hard to understand, or insignificant and humble. So we tend to use obscure in the metaphorical sense. An obscure sound is unclear, an obscure village is hidden away in the countryside, and an obscure poet is little known and probably insignificant. Sorry. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) What a Canadian thing to say. (sighs) Obscure can also be used as a verb. So if you get really nervous when you speak during a debate, your embarrassing twitches and shaking hands can obscure your argument. Interesting. Yeah. Well, I already knew going into this kind of what that meant already, but I was interested to see how there was all those related definitions too. The paint is obscure. And a little uh, jab at small time poets. (laughs) Fuck artists. (laughs) the fuck are they doing out here no one no one's reading your poetry anyway <laughs> uh, i have no comment <laughs> but would you like to lead us or shall i lead us in today's obscure war crimes story sharing session lead away my leading lady i may have stretched the topic again this week folks <laughs> surprise surprise did you read my description of last week's episode i did not <laughs> he 
you should. I put like, Emily talks about a real crime. I'm shocked. I don't know what it was about because I was so shocked. (laughs) I would say, you know, fuck you, you're wrong, but I can't because you're right. (laughs) I know. I know I'm right. Every story I pick has a crime element. Drunk carpet flying? It wasn't Uh a carpet, it was a canoe. Where were you? I don't know, drunk. And excuse me, the Shafts Gallery is my goal way of transportation. <laughs> well, so don't same, but it's not a crime. <laughs> Drunk flying is a crime. Uh-huh. They should have been pulled over by the Sky Police. <laughs> by the Sky Cop Car. Absolutely. Are you ready for me? The Sky stuff? Cop Canoe. That's some painted. It's painted in police <sighs> colors. Perfect. Yeah, tell me your story. <laughs> Those artists we were talking about? <laughs> We need need a police flying canoe. Thank you in advance. And then maybe you won't be so obscure. Mm, Rise from the obscurity. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, God. Okay. I'm sorry. I'm trying not to laugh because of who I am as a person. But here's the story that I've picked for this week. War brings with it not only stories of suffering, death, and struggle, but also those of mystery. Beyond all of the fighting and the tales of battle and valor, there often seem to be other more enigmatic, I included it because I thought I knew how to say it, but I don't, phenomena <laughs> lurking in the background. Indeed, some of the most mysterious and weirdest things seem to pop up in the remote battlefields of Earth, from unexplained phenomena to ghostly happenings and strange beasts like gremlins. Hmm, I see where this is going. Maybe. We'll see. War can be a wellspring of high strangeness. The Vietnam War was no different, and among the fighting amidst the humid, mosquito-choked jungles, American GIs began to come back with tales of something weirder than their enemies lurking in the forests of Vietnam. And it seemed that while the Viet Cong were not the only thing to watch out for in the dense underbrush, is that politically correct? I do not know. Let's see. (laughs) Here, the foreign soldiers would come face to face with a creature that was well known by the locals, but new to them. A humanoid, hairy biped, the likes of which none of them had ever seen, which would lurch forth from the deepest jungles to startle or even attack, and which would come to be known as rock apes. Excuse me. (laughs) Even before the fighting started in the jungles of Vietnam, there had long been stories of something strange lurking in the remote areas here. Various people of the jungles choked interiors of Vietnam, Laos, and northern Borneo, in particular within the Vu Quang Nature Reserve, have a rich tradition of stories of a bipedal, hairy, ape-like creature known by various names, such as the... I'm sorry. Batutat? Ujit? Or... Nigruingrung, also written as Nigoirung, or jungle people. Sorry about that. These jungle people are said to be about six feet tall, stout, and very muscular, with protruding stomachs and covered in hair ranging from black to brown in color. Does this sound familiar? Almost like a... Unfortunately. A Vietnam Bigfoot, maybe? How the fuck do you find these things? I, like, where are you searching in the dark web? Obscure, war, mythological creatures. Hey, you asked for obscurity and I'm giving you it. <laughs> how I come across it is nobody's business. I like how for war criminals last year you talked about fucking gremlins. I'm like, how is that a war criminal? I don't understand. Um, they literally committed crimes against people in World War II. They are war criminals. <laughs> If they existed, maybe. Hey, who's to say? Who's to say? Science? Who's to say? Science? But do they know? Oh, they know. (laughs) Okay. Anyways. Hold on. Except for the knees and the soles of the feet, the hands and the face which remain bare. And although they inhabit isolated remote jungle areas... The thing that I cannot say are reported to be bold and aggressive, especially with the variety from Borneo, which apparently attacks humans without thinking twice about it. And they travel in groups and they arrive at dusk or during the night. And the locals of these regions consider these creatures to be a fact of life. 
But the Batu Tant, which is another way of saying uh, what that was, was not really known to the outside world until the war began to impede their domain. Hmm. During the days when troops toiled and fought in the clouds of mosquitoes, they were dodging enemy bullets and hiking relentlessly through the humid, oppressive heat, and there would be numerous reports from soldiers of strange creatures prowling through the forest that were neither human or ape. And so it was the name of the people who were fighting in Vietnam to call them rock apes. Accounts of encountering these creatures were commonplace throughout the Vietnam War from both sides of the conflict. So in many cases, the strange beasts were mistaken for enemy troops, only to startle soldiers when they were actually seen up close. From the most well-known in-depth published accounts of these creatures come from a book by a veteran named Craig P.J. Jorgensen called Very Crazy G.I. Strange But True Stories of the Vietnam War. So this account describes the ordeal of a six-man unit from the 101st Airborne Division who were taking a break after a relentless hike through the mountainous jungle terrain, carrying heavy bags. Even as they rested, they were attuned to the surrounding environment and very aware that the Viet Cong were everywhere and could strike at any moment. So as the unit sat there resting, there's some trees located about 15 yards uphill were then reported to start shaking violently and they assumed it was the enemy approaching. So the soldiers prepared their weapons and trained their eyes on the suspicious trees. And as they sat in wait, they noticed that there was an oblong shaped head with a face covered in reddish hair, possessing a huge mouth and dark, deep set eyes had emerged from the bush. The star soldiers that had witnessed a strange creature step from the underbrush revealed a five foot tall, muscular frame enveloped in matted red hair where it stood on two legs that seemed to carefully scrutinize the men. So the soldiers then speculated what it must have been was a large orangutan, but then one of them pointed out that orangutans are not actually native to Vietnam. So while they were arguing about it, the beast had lost interest in them and then went back into the jungle. So in one 1968 account from the jungle veteran Robert Baird's diary, he described an incident in which his unit began hearing noises they didn't understand, along the outer perimeter of the camp at night. So not knowing if they were hearing normal jungle life or a different language, a Mexican-American corporal named Poncho <sighs> took it upon... Uh, passive racism. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no comment. Took it upon himself to go out and investigate in the evening. Poncho was determinately marched up the hill to the communications bunker to see what was going on. When the corporal was on his way back, he was witnessed letting off some short bursts of fire from his weapon before hurrying back to the camp in an agitated state. So almost immediately, the unit's lieutenant had been on the radio demanding to know who was firing and at what. When Pancho reached the camp, he excitedly related that he'd been walking back and he noticed a bush that wasn't there before. So when he leaned down to take a look at it, it snorted at him. And Baird would later say that what he had encountered was the ubiquitous rock ape of Vietnam. He would later come to learn that they were reported to be everywhere and quite fearless, and they believe that that is what they heard that night. Hmm. So, in another encounter from 1969, a patrol was caught off guard by enemy fire after which everybody took cover. It was then that, that something strange made its presence known to one of the group. As the witness was laying there avoiding getting shot, there was a figure that broke out of the thick vegetation which at first seemed to be a large man, but as it ran past, it was clear it was something else altogether because the figure was described as being about seven feet tall in height, extremely built and covered in reddish brown hair. And whatever it was moved extremely quickly and then was caught by some bullets in the crossfire after it, which it stumbled, but then it didn't go down. It was then that the enemy began yelling something to each other very excitedly that the witness could not understand before they ran off, with one of the enemy even leaving his weapon behind in a panic. So the American patrol regrouped and headed to a more secure area, and that night they were assailed by a, a bunch of strange animalistic noises during the night that sound like a mixture of whines, barks, howls, and grunts. And the next day, some of the patrol requested permission to go investigate what had been seen, and heard the previous day as there was a search underway that they'd come across an enemy soldier that seemed to be a viciously torn apart. So the patrol was so disturbed by the gruesome sight that they had ran back to their base by the hill, and one of the witnesses would later say, The rest of the time we were in Vietnam, I never heard the sounds or saw anything like it again. The talk of what we'd seen had spread around very quickly, and some of the locals called it a name I can neither pronounce or remember. 
but the translation, if I recall, was stench monkey or foul monkey, something like that. I can't remember for sure. What I do know is that it bothered me so much that I transferred from there to a job on a helicopter so then I wouldn't have to be in the jungle anymore. So some of the rock ape accounts are truly dramatic and frightening. One such account was given by Michael Kelly of the D Co. 1st and 1st slash 502nd D Infantry of the 101st Airborne Division, uh, describes not only one rock ape, but hundreds of them. So in the account in 1969, again, eight of the strange creatures came casually walking up a trail in the ridge of Noi Mo Tau and <laughs> surprised a platoon that was in the middle of having lunch when they turned a ridge about 10 meters from where the men were situated. According to Kelly, the platoon had first immediately thought that they were Viet Cong and all hell broke loose. Is Viet Cong another way of just saying Viet Vietnam soldiers? I didn't actually search that up. I have no idea. Okay. I've never heard that before. Me either. When I read it, I thought they were talking about the Congo at first, and I didn't think twice. But now that I'm reading it, it seems like it applies to a lot of different things. Anyway, the squad of men opened up with M16s, M79s, and grenade launchers, lighting up the forest in a vicious display of booming firepower and flying pieces of vegetation. Kelly himself was at the far end of the clearing, about 50 meters from where the barrage of continuous shooting had started, and he grabbed a weapon to run along and join the platoon sergeant, taking cover under a toppled tree. So Viet Cong is the National Liberation Front, and it was a mass political organization in South Vietnam and Cambodia with its own army, the People's Liberation Armed Forces of South Vietnam that fought against the United States and South Vietnamese governments during the Vietnam War, eventually emerging on the winning side. Okay, I guess that makes sense for context. So when Kelly and the platoon sergeant stayed hidden during the gunfire, they were ready to see a sizable enemy force descending on them, just based off the relentless gunfire that they were hearing. But instead, what they saw was their platoon firing away at ghostly images that were swooshing through the bushes and the trees all around them. So the mysterious intruders were described as being around five and a half feet tall, but all but one of them was light brown to reddish brown in color. The other was almost black and was a particularly aggressive large male, which then reported to madly rush at the men through the thick underbrush, snarling with teeth bared. Throughout the frightening encounter, the ape-like beast reportedly made sounds that sounded exactly like dogs barking. Then the creatures, whatever they were, abruptly melted away into the forest, disappearing as though they had never been there. When the surprise platoon regained their composure, they searched the bullet-riddled, gun-smoke-permeated area and found no sign of any dead bodies of the animals, but not any fur or blood either. Kelly would remark on the scene by saying, This may sound very strange to you, but although I had no to little concern about killing the enemy, the killing of innocent animals always turned my stomach and could enrage me if done without being a necessity. But I searched the site and found not a drop of blood, which totally amazed me given the amount of firing that had gone on. I wondered to this day if the men were shooting just to scare the rock apes away or whether they were really just poor marksmen. The men who had suffered the surprise looked a bit worse for wear, and I'm sure a few had to wash their shorts out as a result of the unwelcome visit. It really scared the crap out of them, I kid you not. Fair. Very fair. <laughs> so it'd scare the crap out of me too. Right? I know, right? This sort of mass congregation of the rock apes was apparently not an isolated incident. So in another shocking account, another platoon was also overrun by large numbers of the creatures in 1966. There was a strategic location known as Hill 868 in the Quang Nam province and was allegedly the site of a battle between the Marines and a large group of apes. I don't know. There's like a bunch of military documents about this kind of stuff. That's so obscure. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> you told me to pick obscure and I come out with the best. <laughs> in the account, Marines operating in the area called their captain to report movement in the bush that they believed to be a large force of the Viet Cong heading their way. The captain then radioed back saying they should stay in place and nobody was to fire in order not to give away their position. The patrol ensued radio back to say that it turned out it was not Viet Cong at all, but a rather large group of hairy, bipedal humanoids that were all around them. The marine patrol was commanded again not to open fire, but to instead throw rocks to the creatures to scare them away. This would prove to be unwise as the rock apes then began hurtling rocks back at them with great force, all the while screeching and growling at them in the jungle, and estimated hundreds of them. That's a big oof. Yeah. <laughs> That's a super yikes. Yikes. Big yikes, my dude. Mm -hmm. Big yikes. So despite the assault of rocks and numerous requests for permission to open fire, the Marines were nevertheless told not to shoot, but rather to use their bayonets instead. 
So shortly after, the captain could hear screeching and screams of pain from the, the marines and the apes over the radio, as well as a frantic message, we're going hand to hand. Shortly after that, the hill erupted in a roar of gunfire, screams, and screeching. When the captain sent men to go investigate, the war-torn area was found to be littered with the injured men, as well as allegedly the bloodied bodies of several of the mysterious rock apes. So no marines had died, but several were seriously injured and had to be evacuated by helicopter. The alleged battle became so infamous, it was called the Battle of Dong Den. What a name. What a name. Hill 868 became known among the men as allegedly being so infested with rock apes that it was called Monkey Mountain. In 1968, members of the Mike Company of the 3rd Battalion of the 5th Marines operating on Hill 868 apparently came across plentiful physical evidence of the creatures, such as droppings, tufts of hair, footprints, as well as hearing their eerie barks and cries at the night. And rock apes would even occasionally assault them with rocks lobbed from the jungle. The apes were described as throwing like girls, but with velocity. Wow. In one account given by a veteran named Steve Canyon, a unit of Marines was out in the jungle of Hill 868 at night testing out a new muzzle flash and noise suppressors for their weapons. As they were setting up, they suddenly noticed a rock ape glaring at them from the thick vegetation, reportedly completely unafraid. After a few moments of staring at the soldiers, the creature was then said to let out a sound like the bark of a dog. One of the men threw a rock at it to scare it away. It hit dead on, after which the ape picked up a rock of its own and hurled it back at them. It was then noticed that there are more rock apes gathering around in the jungle, around 20 of them, which then began to screech, howl, and throw rocks at the frightened men all in unison. Despite the threatening situation, the unit did not open fire. Instead, they made a hasty retreat. When asked later why they had not shot at the creatures, Canyon would say, I don't know, it didn't seem right. But those apes started to come out at us, and we ran as fast as we could, and we didn't stop until we're out of the jungle. Nevertheless, there are several other reasons for why these monkeys are poor candidates for what was reported. So encounters with rock apes became so numerous and alarming that the North Vietnamese even mounted expeditions to go out and find evidence of them. According to Craig's P.J. Jorgensen book, Very Crazy G.I. Strange But True Stories of the Vietnam War, in 1974, the North Vietnamese Party Secretariat ordered a scientific expedition to find definitive solid evidence of the rock apes based off the numerous reports that were submitted through the military on all of these findings. Professor Vo Kui of the Vietnam National University was chosen to conduct the investigation, and while they did not see any of the beasts, they did find some curious tracks out in the remote jungle. A cast was made of one of the footprints, which was then sent to be analyzed and was found to be wider than a human print, but too large of that to be an ape. So other expeditions followed up on the find, including one led by the North Vietnamese general Huang Min Thao, but were unsuccessful. Interestingly, this is not the first time footprints of a mysterious creature had been found. In 1970, a doctor, John McKinnon, claimed to have found tracks of the creatures and believed them to be of a hominid origin, perhaps similar to the Meganthropus, which the locals said they came from a creature called the Batutut. Tracks were described as having human-looking toes, but being about the size of that of a Asiatic black bear, which are not native to Vietnam. So McKinnon wrote in his findings in 1978 in his book, in search of the red ape, although he would never find definitive proof of the rock ape ever existing. So McKinnon would nevertheless discover several new species of large mammal in the Vu Quang uh, mountain rainforest in 1992, demonstrating that the region was more than capable of hiding large new species from sight. Another report from Army Reporter, 27th of April, 1970, a guard fired at movement along the camp perimeter, and in the morning, strange footprints that were neither human or ape were found, as well as blood spattered along the forest floor. The prints were photographed, and the creature was called Powell's Ape, named after the depot company commander, Captain Powell. In 1982, more footprints were examined when Professor Trang Hong Viet of Pedagonic University of Hanoi found them while collecting specimens near Chu Mong Ray in the Sathai district. So the professor made casts of these prints, which were around 11 by 6 inches long, and photos of these casts were later published in a Japanese 4chan magazine, 4chan News of the World. Dr. Bernard Kuvelmans also wrote of the curious prints in his opus On the Track of Unknown Animals. He recounts the tale of Lieutenant Alan Svitspel, of Cumberland, <laughs> R.I., who, while on a helicopter patrol for the 101st Airborne Division, spied some strange, huge footprints below, and he would say of his finding, 
I had been looking at the footprints from the air for quite a while, and I noticed the exceptional size of them immediately. I landed to get a closer look, and sure enough, these tracks were about 18 inches long and 8 inches wide. They were embedded deeply, indicating that the... The creature was heavy. Literally. It says indicating a heavy, heavy wearer, but I feel like that's not how you're supposed to say that. You don't wear your feet, you own them. The stride of whatever made them was about four feet. So if you think about that, between each of these different footprints, he found about four feet of measurable distance, which is crazy. That is really crazy. So the creature was estimated to be perhaps about eight feet tall based on the size of the prints and underscoring the sightings reports that spoke of much larger specimens. Even more impressive than the footprints are actual bodies that have been claimed to be discovered on occasion. In one case described by Steve Williams, it was claimed that a veteran had told him of a nighttime low altitude special forces drop-in to the thick jungle interior of Vietnam during 1967 to 68, when after the drop, the team heard a low gurgling sound over a period of three nights. It was then claimed on the fourth night they came across the upper torso of a decomposing Bigfoot-like creature, which had been horrifically blown apart by something, perhaps a landmine. So since the creature had been long dead, they surmised that what they had heard over the three nights was perhaps its mate mourning it. In William's account, he says of the gruesome find, they could see into the body cavity, spine, lungs, and such. All was crawling with bugs. There was shorter hair on the huge head and the eyes sunk back an inch from half the brow line. It had long arms and very large long fingers. One hand was still wrapped around a branch. He, the source of the person who told this, uh, didn't say what color it was, but he did mention it had a flat nose. If the creature had its legs, the estimated height would have been around eight feet tall. And there was no sign of the lower half of the body. They were all able to see the teeth. All flat, well-formed molars, except the canines, which were longer and pointed, seemed adapted to living in the forest long arms and fingers, and perhaps builds night nests similar to like what gorillas do. With all these spectacular reports circulating around the Vietnam War, we're left to wonder what the rock apes, what they actually were. So there's a, actually a variety of theories surrounding what they would be, with the most commonly being that what was seen was a Tonkin snub-nosed monkey, or Dolman snub-nosed monkey, Vietnam's largest native primate species, and it's also highly endangered. So critically endangered, it was long thought to be extinct until its rediscovery in 1989. But nowadays, there's thought to be less than 250 of the animals left. So they live in southern China, Vietnam, and parts of Myanmar, and they get their name from their flat, upturned noses. Several features seem to point to this species as being the culprits, as the Tonkin snub-nosed monkey are highly territorial and are known to show little fear towards humans, which is probably one of the reasons why they were had been so decimated by hunters. So they also produce a wide range of vocalizations, including ones that sound like the bark of a dog. Nevertheless, there are several other reasons for why these monkeys are poor candidates, though, for what was reported from the soldiers. As for their size, they're nowhere near to be around the same size as what the soldiers had seen. And they also have very prominent tails, which is not recorded in any of the reports that any of the soldiers had made in any of their reports. They're also not bipedal, which was one of the trademark uh, characteristics of the rock apes. The bipedal rock apes are supposed to be nocturnal, mm -hmm. whereas the snub-nosed monkeys are not. And there's just like a lot of like differentiating things. So basically most people who had read those reports and are trying to figure out what they are because it's not a species that's been appropriately discovered, pin it on the snub-nosed monkeys because there's so few of them that it's very unlikely that people would even see one nowadays, even though they lack most of the characteristics that were found in the reports. They also don't have the same coloring. So there was another theory that they might be another type of large undiscovered primate that lives in the, the region and it would fit in more with what was reported. And it's feasible for the area because they haven't actually discovered everything that's in that forest either or that jungle. Another theory though from the locals is that it's a relic population of hominoids or early human ancestors that had survived out there. That's kind of what I was thinking when you started this story because like there's a lot of mm -hmm. little communities of people who isolate themselves so that's not entirely impossible. Mm -hmm. There are those who suggest that these sightings of the creatures are due to the use of drugs by the American soldiers, including LSD. However, most of these reports were made by troops that were on active duty, trained observers, and would have not been likely to endanger their mission or the lives of the people around them using drugs. So there's also a fact that these creatures were also seen just as often by the Viet Cong as they were the Americans and were well known by the local tribes. 
So then what are we dealing with here? Is it a result of misidentification or the product of like stresses of war, drugs, maybe a little bit of both? Is there a chance that there's a new species of ape lurking out there in this very remote, isolated jungle? I feel like that's probably the most likely. Right? So unfortunately, in times of war, there are more pressing issues at hand than tracking down mysterious animals. And as a result, many of these reports were never actually followed up on. To the men out in these jungles, this was just one more struggle that they had to deal with already, adding into the forbidding terrain and the constant threat of attack from this elusive enemy. Indeed, this seems to be common with reports of strangeness from war zones. And many such reported phenomena have become lost in time, buried between the violence and the combat. So it seems clear that as long as there are war or tales of the bizarre will seep in along with the tales of horror and some of these mysteries may be gone just as surely as the lives were lost and that sad is the story of my vietnam rock apes you know not as out there as the gremlins i'll give you that right so today i'm gonna tell you about part of the philippine american war Mm -hmm. and this is something that i've never really heard much about i didn't even really know that there was like a philippine american war Oh, I to didn't be hear honest. about it either. Yeah, apparently it happened in 1901, so 118-some years ago. Okay. I'm older than that, but apparently I missed it. <laughs> in the summer of 1901, Brigadier General Robert P. Hughes, who commanded the Department of Viesas, was responsible for Samar, instigated an aggressive policy of food deprivation and poverty destruction on the island. The objective was to force the end of Filipino resistance. Part of his strategy was to close three key ports on the southern coast, Basie, Blangiga, and Gwen. I'm so sorry. I suck. How the tables have tables. <laughs> I know. Fuck. (laughs) Samar was a major center for the production of Manila hemp, the trade of which was financing Filipino forces on the island. At the same time, the United States' interests were eager to secure control of hemp trade, which was a vital material for both the United States Navy and American agro-industries, such as cotton. Mm -hmm. On August 11th, 1901, Company C of the 9th U.S. Infantry Regiment arrived in Balangia, mm-hmm. the third largest town on the southern coast of Samar Island, to close its port and prevent supplies reaching Filipino forces in the interior, which at the time were under the command of General Vincity Lucaban. Lucaban had been sent there in December 1898 to govern the island on behalf of the First Philippine Republic under Emilio Aguinaldo. In late May of 1901, prior to the stationing of any Americans in Balangina, town mayor Pedro Abian had written to Lucaban pledging to observe a deceptive policy with the Americans, doing whatever they may like, and when a favorable opportunity arises, the people will strategically rise against them. Relations between the soldiers and the townspeople were amicable for the first month of the American presence in the town. Indeed, it was marked by extensive fraternization between the two parties. This took the form of tuba, palm wine, drinking among the soldiers and male villagers, baseball games, and arnis demonstrations. However, tensions rose due to several reasons. Captain Thomas W. Connell, commanding officer of the American unit in Balangia, ordered the town cleaned up in preparation for a visit by the U.S. Army's Inspector General. However, in complying with his directive, the townspeople inadvertently cut down vegetation with food value in violation of Luke Ban's policies regarding food security. As a consequence, on September 18, 1901, around 400 guerrillas sent by Lucaban appeared in the vicinity of Balangia. They were to meet sanctions upon the town officials and local residents for violating Lucaban's orders regarding food security and for fraternizing with the Americans. The threat was probably diffused by Captain Inigo Daza, a member of Lucaban's staff, and by the parish priest, Father Donato Gumambalieto. I'm really butchering this. 
That's fine. I, I butchered everything, too. <laughs> a few days later, Connell had hit the town's male residence rounded up and detained for the purpose of hastening his cleanup operations. Around 80 men were kept in two Sibley tents unfed overnight. In addition, Connell had the men's bullows and the stored rice for their tables confiscated. These events would have sufficiently insulted and angered the townspeople, and without the sympathy of Lucaban's guerrillas, the civilians were left to their own devices to plan their course of action against the Americans. Mm. A few days before the attack, Valerino Abarnio, the town's police chief, and Captain Daza met to plan the attack on the American unit. So to address the issue of sufficient manpower to offset the Americans' advantage in firepower, Abernardo and Daza disguised the congregation of men as a workforce aimed at preparing the town for a local fiesta, which incidentally also served to address Connell's preparations for his superior's visit. Mm. Abernardo also brought in a group of tax evaders to bolster their numbers. <laughs> hmm. That's a different uh, approach. Yeah. Bring in the tax evaders. We need people. Bring Anyone? me the tax evaders. <laughs> Much palm wine was brought in to ensure that the American soldiers would be drunk the day after the fiesta. Fiesta. Hours before the attack, women and children were sent away to safety to mask the disappearance of women from the dawn service in church. 34 men from Barrio Lawn cross-dressed as women. I was going to say, they totally dressed as women, didn't they? These women, carrying small coffins, were challenged by Sergeant Scherer of the Sentry Post about the town plaza near the church. Opening one of the coffins with his bayonet, he saw the body of a dead child who he was told was a victim of cholera epidemic. Abashed, he let the women pass on. Unbeknownst to the sentries, the other coffins hid the bolos and other weapons of the attackers. So he just happened to open the one coffin that actually had a dead child in it. Yeah. That's unbelievable. I know. The issue of the children's bodies... Mertis further attention since there is much conflict between the accounts by members of Company C that day, the 27th and 52nd anniversary of the founding of the parish on occasion which an image of recumbent Christ known as Santo Inrita would have been carried around the parish. In modern times, these Santo Inritas are enclosed by a glass case, but at the time were commonly enclosed in a wooden box. Between 6.20 and 6.45 in the morning of September 28, 1901, the villagers made their move. Abenar, who had been supervising the prisoners' communal labor in town plaza, grabbed the rifle of Private Adolf Gamlin, one of the American sentries, and stunned him with a blow to the head. This served as a signal of the rest of the communal laborers in the plaza to rush the other sentries and soldiers of Company C who were mostly having breakfast in the mess area. Abenar then gave a shout, signaling the other Filipino men to attack and fired Gamlin's rifle at the mess tent, hitting one of the soldiers. The pealing of the church bells and the sound from the conch shells began being blown, followed seconds later. Some of the Company C troopers were attacked and hacked to death before they could grab their rifles. The few who survived the initial onslaught fought almost barehanded with kitchen utensils, steak knives, and chairs. Yikes. One private used a baseball bat to fend off the attackers before being overwhelmed. The men detained in the Sibley tents broke out and made their way to the municipal hall. Simultaneously, the attackers hidden in the church broke into the parish hall and killed the three American officers there. An unarmed Company C soldiers was ignored, as was Captain Connell's Filipino houseboy. The attackers initially occupied the parish house and the municipal hall. However, the attack at the mess tents and barracks failed, with Private Gamlin recovering consciousness and managing to secure another rifle. Caused considerable casualties among Filipinos. 
With the initial surprise wearing off and the attack degrading, Arbonar called for the attackers to break off and retreat. The surviving Company C soldiers led by Sergeant Frank Beatron escaped by sea to Basie and Tantun Liate. The townspeople buried their dead and abandoned the town. Of the 74 men in Company C, 36 were killed in action, including all its commissioned officers, Captain Thomas W. Colonial, First Lieutenant Edward A. Bumpus and Major Richard S. Grisward. Yikes. 22 were wounded in action and four were missing in action. Eight died later of wounds received in combat. Only four escaped unscathed. The villagers captured about 100 rifles and 25,000 rounds of ammunition. Oh my god. And suffered 28 dead and 22 wounded. Yikes. That's some damage. Yeah. And that's my crime. Whoa, that was obscure and a crime. <laughs> it was both of those things. That is so crazy. I didn't even know about this conflict between America and the Philippines. That's insane. I know. Weird. I had no idea. And then I discovered it and I was like, when did this happen? Apparently in the 1900s. <laughs> <laughs> No, but that's different. Yikes. Well, that definitely goes to show how a lot of these start, though, because it's totally building tensions and then, you know, mismanaged political stuff. And and then one thing goes wrong and all of a sudden the, like, barely on the edge thing that was okay is a now land- gone and totally <laughs> yeah, in the shit. It's a, it's a landslide of bad shit is what it is. Definitely. Totes. Totes my goats. I haven't even heard that in a while. Yikes. <laughs> Big yikes. What is this, two, 2012 again? Totes my goats. My oats. Yikes. Uh, but I do think we are at the end of this week's episode. Wow, you survived to the end. If you've made it this far. Should we spin and figure out what we're going to talk about next week? We could do that. <laughs> Which means we're going to. Well, next week we are talking about winter crimes. Ooh, drumroll! Because even though it's not technically winter yet, it's coming. Winter is coming. It is. It's coming fast. Where we live, there's already snow on the ground. It's so rude. It's super rude. It doesn't stop being rude, actually. I'm upset about it's it. It's rude year-round. I mean, it was like snowing before Thanksgiving, though. Yeah. Well, Canadian Thanksgiving is mid-October for any Americans who listen to us. I haven't read our demographics recently. <laughs> If we have listeners still. <laughs> nah, they're all gone. It's just me. They left. It's just you listening on, on repeat. We gotta bump our numbers up. Anywho, though, well, thank you for joining us for another episode of The Wheel of Crime. This is Emily signing off after we give up our information because I forgot that part. Jenny! Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, at Wheel of Crime. Or you can email us, wheelofcrime at gmail.com. Follow us, yo. Okay. Signing off for reels now. This is Emily. Goodbye. This is Jen. Goodbye. Woo! Woo! Woo!